0: If you have your bible with you and i hope you do i invite you to find the seventh chapter of the book of ezra the old testament book of ezra chapter seven i'm grateful for the privilege to stand in this pulpit once again i want to thank whoever's responsible for uh seeing that i got an invitation i have a feeling it was our friends uh the scoggins over here that uh Responsible for that, uh, Artendale. But nevertheless, I first stood in the historic pulpit of this church in the summer of 1969, and a few other times during the course of my 15 months as the minister of youth here. Uh, Henry Lyon, your pastor for 21 years, uh, was my pastor during those days, and my mentor, a man who walked with God in difficult days. So those were difficult days. For this city, and uh, so just to stand where he stood is a great honor. Uh, my wife Kim is with me today, and we've been praying for for Selma. You had a terrible uh, storm, and I know people around the country are praying for you, and we have been praying as well for God's grace, for your healing, and uh, praise out of this terrible storm the Lord will be glorified uh, through this experience. (sighs) I want to preach to you this morning on the preacher's sacred calling. And I know that you're without a pastor and uh, perhaps it is presumptive on my part to just drop in for one day, one sermon and Talk to you about the subject for our consideration this morning. But I feel a a deep, deep impression from the Spirit of God uh, to deliver to you the message that I have prepared for you today. Um, In the course of a church's life and ministry and witness in a given community, uh, you make a multitude of decisions. Both great and small, but no decision the church ever ever makes is more important than the decision of who will be her pastor. That's ultimate. And uh, you're in the process now. I don't even know if a search committee has been been chosen or not. If so, I hope you'll listen extra carefully. if not, then all of us hope will listen carefully because I'm persuaded. That not only is this the most important decision that a church ever makes is who will be our pastor is i'm persuaded that somewhere in our southern baptist zion maybe right here in dallas county maybe somewhere in a state far far away god in eternity past has already chosen the man to be your pastor and it is incumbent upon you to find God's man, whoever he may be. Regardless of his age or race or educational background, those things are not unimportant. But what is of ultimate importance is finding the man that God has prepared to serve you in the days and years and decades to come. Now... I've been preaching now for 52 or three years. I've preached 6,000 times, most of those at Lakeview Baptist Church in Auburn. And uh, I've, I've learned that uh, preaching is a dangerous work. It is dangerous to the preacher's ego. A few years ago, when our granddaughter Margaret Ann, at the time age four, was visiting... And on Sunday morning, I was seated with her on the front pew. We were singing the last song. And I turned to Margaret Ann and I said, Now, Margaret Ann, Papa's about to go up and preach, and I want you to listen really, really well today to the sermon. And at lunchtime today, I want you to tell me one thing that you learned from the sermon. So we gathered for Sunday dinner after the service. I said to Margaret Ann, Uh, what's one thing do you remember from the sermon and she thought and thought and thought and thought and she said Papa I don't remember anything you said well when we came in from church on Sunday night she came up to me and she said Papa I remember something you said in the sermon this morning I'm sure my countenance brightened up I said well what was that Margaret Ann?" and she said Papa you said fine chapter (laughs) 2 Oh, well, that's a blow to your ego. Fast forward three or four years. Our granddaughter, Vivian, was visiting. Margaret Ann's first cousin. She was six years of age, and just like previously, I was seated on the front row And uh, during the last song, and I said, Now, Vivian and Papa's about to go preach, and I want, you to, I want you to listen carefully and tell me at lunch today one thing that you remember from the sermon. She said, Okay. So we gathered at Sunday lunch that day, I said, now, Vivian, what, what do you remember from the sermon? What do you remember that Papa said today in church? And she said, you said, please be seated. <laughs> so I want to say that uh, preaching is, is, is really dangerous. It's, it's, uh, it's a real threat to the preacher's ego. Well, I discovered through these many years of being a pastor preacher is that uh, preaching is hard work if it's done right. And Sunday comes every seven days. And Satan seeks to thwart the advance of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in many different ways. And he aims many of his weapons at the men who stand in the pulpit on the Lord's day. He has a lot of weapons in his arsenal to bring down preachers like sexual immorality or family failure or apostasy or theological liberalism. But those tools are, while deadly at least spiritually deadly, are not nearly as effective as some other tools that he has. Satan has uh, snares that can be very, very subtle, but really more effective than some of those most obvious temptations. And I'm persuaded that one of Satan's most effective ploys to neutralize the dynamic, spirit-filled witness of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to have members of churches, yes, even Southern Baptist churches, who have a rather distorted view of the preacher's calling. Now, I've been watching this a long, long time, and I've noticed that some churches, some larger churches with large staffs, they want a pastor who will be like a chief executive officer, and he's running an organization, a big multifaceted organization. Other churches, especially smaller churches, especially rural churches, but in one sense, some people in every church, they want a chaplain. They want someone who will be there every time they want to talk to him. And it doesn't matter how major or minor the issue may be. Now, I believe in chaplaincy, and every good pastor does chaplaincy work, but that is not what God says the preacher's major assignment is to be. Then there are others who want a political activist. Some of the more liberal churches want a political activist of the left who will be advocating for social justice causes, and others want a political activist of the right who will be advocating for their political causes, whatever they may be. And now there's a growing number of churches who want and who have as their pastor what we would call a life coach, who comes Sunday by Sunday and stands before the people of God and gives seven tips about this or three principles about that. Now, I would remind us today that the Bible is not filled with good advice. The Bible is is a declaration of good news. Here's the difference between good advice and good news. And then some churches, and particularly First Baptist churches or First Methodist churches or First Lutheran churches in county seat towns, they want want a pastor who can move uh, in and out with the movers and the shakers in civic life. Again, nothing wrong with doing that. But that's not what the Scripture has God's men to do. So, as you are seeking the next man to be your pastor, take all of those factors in, 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 in consideration. But watch out for these distractions, because watch this, the good is the enemy of the best. And for the future welfare of First Baptist Church of Selma, you want not just a good pastor, you want the very best pastor that God in eternity past has raised up to be your servant leader, your shepherd, your preacher. And so this morning, the pastor's sacred calling, what is a pastor to be and do? And we find in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, uh, a paradigm of the pastor's sacred calling. Now the context is, Ezra, who is in Babylon, has come back to Jerusalem, and he has linked arms with Nehemiah, who was the civic leader, Ezra being the priest, to rebuild the walls and the gates and to reestablish control of the city of Jerusalem, which had fallen to the Babylonians. And uh, we we find in verse 10 uh, the focus of Ezra's priestly ministry, and I want to suggest this is a pattern for pastors everywhere. Look again in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. We find in this one verse, there are three primary tasks that the Lord has given to those who would serve as spiritual leaders, pastors, overseers in the life of a church, a pattern found in the Old Testament, but duplicated in the New Testament, as I'll show you in just a moment. So the first first task of of a pastor in his calling is the pastor is called to study God's Word. Let me say that again. The pastor is called to study God's Word. Notice again in verse 10, Ezra 7.10, Ezra devoted himself to the study of the law of God. Ezra set his heart on this. He was diligent in his study of, reading of, absorption of the law of God. And in doing so, Ezra set the pattern for every every spiritual leader down to this very generation. Now, we'll come back to Ezra 7 in just a moment, but I want you to find with me Acts chapter 6. Because what we find in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is uh, the same pattern that Ezra lived out in his priestly ministry uh, there in ancient Jerusalem was followed by the apostles in uh, later-day Jerusalem. Now, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, tells us of the calling of the first seven men who we know as today as deacons. Look in verse 1, Acts 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, that is, the church was rapidly expanding, literally by the thousands of people who were coming to faith in Christ, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. This is the first crisis that came to the church in Jerusalem, the mother church of all churches. And there were widows there who spoke Hebrew, there were widows there who spoke Greek, and uh, the Grecian widows felt like they were being overlooked in the distribution of the food. Verse 2, so the twelve, that's the apostles, that'd be equivalent to the pastors today, the twelve gathered all the disciples together, that is, they had a congregational meeting, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Those twelve apostles, who were the spiritual leaders, the pastors if you please, in the Jerusalem church knew that their calling was not to feed the widows, that's a chaplaincy ministry. Their calling was the Word of God. Verse 3. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So that's, if we read the rest of the, the, the section there, that's exactly what happened. They chose seven men to be deacons and they solved the problem of the distribution. Uh, the... the uh, Uh, unequal distribution of food to the widows. Now it wasn't that the apostles were too good to take care of widows. Not at all. But they knew that that would be an example of the good supplanting the ministry of the best. And what they had been called to do was not to take care of widows. What they had been called to do was the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. And so there's the study of the Word of God. Now, uh, we'll come back to Ezra 7. but Before we do that, let's find 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And uh, not only did Ezra set the pattern for the apostles in Acts chapter 6, but he set the pattern for the apostle Paul. And the apostle Paul, and he's awaiting execution in the Mamertine prison in Rome... Pin these words uh, to Timothy in the last inspired epistle that he wrote. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said to Timothy, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So a preacher's primary calling is to preach the word. And in order to preach the word, you must be prepared to preach the word. Uh, Paul said to Timothy "Be, be prepared in season and out of season be prepared when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it but whatever else you are you are to be prepared when you stand behind the sacred desk on the Lord's day so a call to preach is a call to prepare now may I confess to you that I have never stood to preach and I wish I had another day to make it better but I can say with integrity, I, I, I don't go into the pulpit unprepared. I have spent endless hours preparing to preach God's Word. It is inexcusable for the man of God to stand behind the sacred desk unprepared on the Lord's day. God's people come with hungry hearts, and they need to be fed. And the bread of life is found in the Word of God. God. Joseph Parker was a famous London preacher in the second half of the 19th century. And uh, Joseph Parker said, when asked about his preaching ministry and its fruitfulness, he said, If I had talked all the week, I would not have preached on Sunday. That is all. Mystery there is none. I have made my preaching work my delight, the very festival of my soul. That is all. And so preaching is primary. Therefore, the study of the Word of God should be a top priority during the pastor's week. Not just hanging out by the phone to where the next crisis is and responding. Now, for what it's worth, my pattern was, I was in the study, Tuesday morning to lunch, Wednesday morning to lunch, Thursday morning to lunch, almost all day Saturday and then two hours on Sunday morning, no matter how prepared I was, I'd like to have more time to study, but I I didn't come to the pulpit unprepared. That meant for this preacher that some things had to be uh, temporarily delayed. I didn't take phone calls during those hours. If there was a major crisis, my secretary knew what a major crisis was, when somebody was just calls in the chit chat it's not that pastors are too good to chit chat but if chit chat becomes a replacement for studying the word of god the pastors made a bad exchange with the use of the time god has given him so i'd return phone calls at noon or the end of the day sometimes my correspondence would be delayed by several days because i was busy studying and so there are so many distractions that come in a, pastor's, in a pastor's week or a pastor's day, and the pastor has to guard against those distractions and learn to say no to some good things in order to say yes to that which is infinitely better, which is to be prepared to study the Word. And you think about it, it's a good job. I mean, I would, I would sit at my study desk sometimes and think, you know, these folks are paying me good money to read the Bible. It do not get much better than that. And so the pastor has an inexhaustible resource in this book to stand and proclaim Sunday by Sunday, year after year, decade after decade, thus saith the Lord. Owen Strayan, a young theologian, said, and I quote, "...the minister's study is where the church's health is decided." If the minister is weak in the study, he will be a mouse in the pulpit. If the minister is strong in the study, he will be a lion in the pulpit. We want lions, not mice, in our pulpits. May I say to you, with all the unction and function of my being, a lot of the problems we have in our Our country today, a lot of the moral meltdown that we see is because so many of our pulpits have avoided the controversial subjects and not proclaimed the whole counsel of God. And our people are not informed about what God thinks about the great issues of our time. So what is the preacher's sacred calling? Number one, the preacher is called to study the Word of God. Whoever's on that search committee, you need to ask every candidate you interview, tell me about your sermon preparation time. And be very particular and dig down deep. Number two, we think about the preacher's sacred calling. The preacher is called not only to study God's Word, but he is also called to obey God's Word. Now, if you'll look in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, we read that for Ezra, he devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord. It's not enough just for the pastor to study the Bible, but he is called to obey the principles and precepts that are found therein and to embrace the doctrines that are taught therein. This is nothing less than a call to personal holiness. Now all of us who are the sons and daughters of God are called to be holy. We read it in the Old Testament. We read it in the New Testament. This is what the Lord says, be holy as I am holy. We are to observe the laws of God. We are to obey the commands of God. We're not to compromise with sin. We're to to live godly holy lives in christ jesus the uh, uh, james who wrote the little letter that bears his name said do not uh, uh, merely listen to the word of god do what it says and the apostle paul describing his own apostolic preaching ministry said and i quote we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. In other words, he's saying, I want my life to be so clean, so pure, so holy, that no one can look at me and make an accusation that I should not stand in the pulpit on the Lord's day. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy that the pastor must be above reproach. Now, it's impossible to find a sinless pastor, because no Christian is sinless, but every Christian should be blameless, and certainly those who stand in the pulpits. Robert Murray McShane died at age 29. He was pastor of a church in Dundee, Scotland. And uh, he wrote to a fellow pastor encouraging the necessity of a holy lifestyle, and this is what he said. I know you will apply hard to German, but do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently, this this was uh, 200 years ago. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name in great measure the instrument in great measure according to the purity and perfection of the instrument will be the success now watch this it is not great talents god blesses so much as likeness to jesus a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of god and we are told by his biography that young Robert Murray McShane would pray, God make me as holy as a redeemed sinner can be made. And that ought to be the prayer of every preacher and every child of God. We want to be holy. A pastor's greatest contribution is his own personal holiness. Now we want a pastor with a winsome personality. We want a pastor who has some extraordinary people skills. We want a pastor who has a great deal of theological savvy and is sound in his doctrine. We want a pastor who can lead us in effective ways. And those things are not unimportant. But far, far more important than all of those items that I just mentioned is that the man who is the pastor is a holy man of God. He not only studies the Word of God, but he makes his ambition to submit his lifestyle under the authority of Holy Scripture. Some years ago I was having a pity party, and I was saying to the Lord, Lord it's not fair, and I mentioned one pastor in our city who had great people skills, and I don't, and another pastor who was a gifted writer who wrote an article every week for the paper, and I don't, and another who had a incredible wit about him, and people are always laughing at him, like to be in his presence, and I don't, and another who had a great intellect, and I don't, and I was just saying, Lord, it's not fair. You gave all these talents and abilities to all these people, and you didn't give me much. And God said, well, you can be holy. I got a punch to the gut. Every preacher can be Holy. It's highly unlikely that First Baptist Church is going to get the wittiest pastor out there, or the greatest intellectual out there, or the most gifted writer out there. But you can, and you must find a holy man of God to stand in this pulpit on the Lord's day. When I was in high school, in the twelfth grade, we had English literature, perhaps you did as well we had to read the Canterbury Tales and uh, this is all I remember from the Canterbury Tales it was this comment about the, the priest and it was simply said if the gold rusts what will the iron do you don't need a pastor who rusts you know a pastor is gold who doesn't rust the preacher must reflect God's holiness as it is revealed in God's Word, and obey God's Word. We're talking this morning about the preacher's sacred calling. We're talking about your next pastor. According to Ezra, he devoted himself, first of all, to the study of the law of the Lord, and second, to the observance of the law of the Lord, and then look back in verse uh, 10 again. He devoted himself to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Now hold your place in Ezra chapter seven, and just turn over a few pages to Nehemiah chapter eight, because Ezra and Nehemiah go together. They were contemporaries. They, they uh, as I said earlier, Nehemiah was the political leader, governmental leader, and Ezra was the religious leader. And we read in Ezra, excuse me, in Nehemiah chapter eight, verses one, two, and three, how Ezra practiced the teaching of the laws of God. And all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. That is, uh, older children, I suppose. What we'd call junior high age, maybe a little younger, I don't know. Now watch this, verse 3. He, Ezra read it, that is the law of the Lord, from daybreak till noon. That's a pretty long service right there. He read it from daybreak to noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could not understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now we saw earlier that Paul told Timothy... Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The preacher is to study God's word, obey God's word, and then stand before the people on the Lord's day and read the scriptures and explain the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, line upon line, precept upon precept. And the reason we must preach the Bible is because we must preach Jesus. Jesus is the one and only Savior from sin. Jesus is not the best way to, get, to go to heaven. Jesus is the only way to go to heaven. I fear sometimes some today have this mistaken idea that Christians go to heaven first class and everybody else, at least all the good moral people, go to heaven second class. No, no, no. There's one name given among heaven, among men, by which we must be saved. There's one mediator, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. So if Jesus is the hope of the world, then we need to preach this Bible because this Bible is about Jesus. In the Old Testament, he's concealed. In the New Testament, he's revealed. In the Old Testament, he is prophesied. In the New Testament, we see these prophecies fulfilled. And so that's why it's incumbent for the, for the man of God to stand in the, in the pulpit and explain the scriptures. Because the scriptures are about Jesus. Jesus said of the Old Testament, it's all about me. If we could take this book and turn this book into a person, we would have the Lord Jesus. If we could take Jesus and turn him into a book, we'd have the Bible. Jesus is the hope of the world. There is no hope politically. There is no hope economically for us. It it, is not there. Our hope is found in the person and atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. And that's the only place there's any hope. And if the church fails here, we can't expect the world to pick up our failures. When I went to be pastor in Auburn 43 years ago now, 43 almost 44 years ago now. My goal was to preach through every book of the Bible. I couldn't do it in 42 and a half years. I just ran out of time. I covered all but two books of the New Testament, a good bit of the Old Testament. People don't need to hear the preacher's opinions about current events, people need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear that God has disclosed Himself to us in Scripture. We we preachers are not about ourselves. When we stand behind the pulpit, uh, we're we're to be like the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem on the the week of of His crucifixion. And the crowds were cheering. They weren't cheering for the donkey, they were cheering for Jesus. When the preacher's done, the people ought to leave thinking about, is Jesus great? I love Jesus more than when I walked in the door. It means the preacher needs to guard against trying to entertain the, the members. Uh, there are all plenty of late night comedy shows on TV if you want, you want to laugh. We don't need to laugh. What we need is an encounter with God. The greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul was Charles Spurgeon. Second half of the 20th, uh, 19th century. Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Spurgeon said, and I quote, I do not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. The moment the church of God shall despise the pulpit, God will despise her. It has been through the ministry that the Lord has been pleased to revive and bless His churches. The preacher's job is not to fill the pews. The preacher's job is to fill the pulpit. When the preacher fills the pulpit, the pews take care of themselves in time. Well, sometimes that will ruffle feathers the wrong way sometimes. Some years ago, one of our members came to me. She said to me, uh, "Brother Al, uh, when I come to church here at Lakeview, she says sometimes I come walking away discouraged, and uh, when I come to to church on Sunday, I want to be lifted up. Now, there's nothing wrong. with want to be lifted up." And I said to her, Carolyn, uh, some biblical texts are going to lift you up, and some biblical texts are going to convict you of your sin and make you feel bad and guilty, because you are. The preacher's job is not to make you feel good or to make you feel bad. The preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And he does that by systematically preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse. Chapter by chapter, line upon line, precept upon precept, because the text of Scripture always determines the sermon. So, the man of God is to preach the Word of God. We should be less concerned with making our people full of, our churches full of people, and more concerned with making our people full of God. If you walk away from the Lord's house on the Lord's day and you don't love Jesus more when you walked in the door, something didn't, something didn't happen that God won't do in your life. I can tell you that. You may have enjoyed it. You may have hated it. But if you didn't, you didn't go away with a deeper love for the Lord God Almighty, you just wasted your time. Now I'm going to just uh, be really bold here and address the, the elephant in every Baptist sanctuary. This is my opinion. This is not in the Bible. I'm just going to step off for just a minute here. How long should we expect our pastor to preach? Until he's done. Now, I'm not going to put a time limit on it. I can tell you when I was a student at Southwestern Seminary, my preaching professor, a man to whom I owe a great debt of gratitude, told us, 20 minutes is all people can listen to. You go beyond 20 minutes out of the capacity to follow you. And I was young and arrogant and now I'm old and arrogant. And I figure as long as I'm, I'm going in a straight line and feeding people the word of God, the hungry ones will get it and those who get satisfied early, that's okay. They, they got all they wanted. Some years ago, Kim and I were visiting friends in London. And... Uh, Alan said to me, on Saturday, uh, we're going to go up, want you to go up with me to uh, see a soccer match, they call it football there, in, uh, in Liverpool. So I said, sure. So it's about a three or four hour drive up there from London and we left early on a Saturday morning and on our way to the stadium we stopped in a stereotypical English village, just like you'd think of in a movie, where Alan grew up and where his mother and father were living picked up his father, and the three of us went to the soccer match. And On the way back, we went through Marberley to drop him off, his father off. So we were coming through the village. We were, we drove by the village green, and there was a cricket match going on there. I'd never seen cricket except on television. And so Alan said, Would you like to stop and watch a little, little cricket match? And I said, Sure. And, and, and so we, we, we stopped, and, and it just so happened that his former... Childhood pastor was there. Now, eighty-nine years of age, retired many years retired, Church of England pastor. And they introduced me to his pastor, and had a nice chat with this uh, retired pastor. And then we got back in the car to go to take Mr. Evans to his home. And between the the village green and where the Evans home was, uh, Alan's father said to me. This man you just met was our pastor for like 38 years. And he never preached more than five minutes. And I thought, why bother? I mean, why bother to get up on Sunday morning and take a bath and shave and get dressed for five minutes? What a tragic failure. Almost four decades. He only gave them sermonettes. Now, God has not called preachers to preach sermonettes because sermonettes make Christianettes. And we want to be full bodied followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must be healthy if we're going to do that. And the Bible is the nourishment that God gives to us to feed us and make us healthy followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how shall we preach? I'm almost done with authority with clarity and with passion that's what I have prayed whenever I stand to preach God help me to preach with authority with passion and with clarity authority when we preach the word of God we preach with all the authority of heaven itself because this is God's revealed will to us and when we back that scriptural authority with a holy, godly life, and the people in the pew know that the man of God who's preaching to them is walking in humility and holiness with God in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, then he will be preaching with authority. Uh, No, no, uh, maybe this, maybe that. Just declare, "Thus saith the Lord." Up, down, in, out, black, white, whatever. No compromise on the word of God. Must preach with authority. Jim Chattox, in my estimation, the premier preaching professor of our generation, who teaches at Southeastern Seminary, in North Carolina. In these words, we must remember that the role of the pastor-preacher is to exalt God by preaching the Word of God with the highest degree of integrity. The highest degree of integrity comes only with the highest degree of authority, and the only real authoritative preaching is biblical exposition, where the preacher and the listeners are in submission to the primary meaning of each text. That's where we find God's stuff, not just the good stuff. When the preacher allows the text to be preeminent, the people are sure to be getting God's stuff. And when they get His stuff, He gets the glory. So, you want a preacher who will preach with authority. Second, a preacher who will preach with clarity. You know, it's been said that a mist in the pulpit creates a fog in the pew. I, I, when I was pastor I would, I would just Lord help me to be clear uh, let them go away glad sad or mad but never confused never scratching their head like, well, what in the world was brother Al trying to get across today I couldn't follow a word he said no nope. clarity now Augustine the great theologian of the 4th and 5th century said a wooden key is not so beautiful as a golden one but if it can open the door when the golden one cannot it is far more useful. And Martin Luther the great reformer said and I quote no one can be a good preacher to the people who is not willing to preach in a manner that seems childish and vulgar to them. There's nothing uh, to be commendable for using big words when little words will do. My my heart was to preach in such a way that the ten year olds could understand it if they wanted to. Again, Martin Luther says when I preach. This is the great reformer in Wittenberg, Germany, five hundred plus years ago. He said when I preach, I don't pay attention to the doctors or the magistrates, and I have over forty of those in my congregation. I have all my eyes on the servant maids and on the children. And if the learned men are not well pleased with what they hear, then the door is open. That was Luther. And when I went to Lakeview in 1979 from a country church in South Alabama to a university town with dozens of professors and faculty members on on the membership roll and now a dozen or so medical doctors, I preached to them just like they're sinners because they are. And what a, a university professor needs and what a lawyer needs and what a professional businessman needs is Jesus. If They get Jesus and start walking with the Lord, all everything will take care of itself in time. So it's not, it's not the preacher's job to preach to the intelligentsia of his church. It's the preacher's job to preach to them as if they are either unsaved sinners who need a savior or saved sinners who need to be sanctified and increasingly be conformed to the image of the Son of God. So preach with clarity. And then I say, God, help me to preach with passion. Authority, clarity, passion. In other words, believe what you say. If you don't believe it, don't say it. If you're not trying to live it, don't say it. And uh, I believe we ought to use the best grammar and diction and that we can. I've worked hard at that through the years. But I'd rather hear a preacher say, i done seen it, when he's actually seen something. And to say, I have seen it, when he ain't seen nothing. Preach with passion, with conviction, with clarity, with authority, the oracles of God. Now I'm going to stop, because I could go for hours on this. That's just a little overview Ezra 7, 10. Look at it again. Here's here's your paradigm right here. Whoever ends up on the search committee, if it's already been chosen, this is for you right here. Look at it again. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. And Ezra devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching his decrees and laws in Israel. The preacher's sacred calling. Study the word of God obey the Word of God, proclaim the Word of God. That's God's design for His church right here in Holy Scripture. God our Father, I'm grateful for the privilege once again to come to this historic church, this historic pulpit where I listened to Henry Lyon preach for 15 months with such authority and passion and clarity. And Lord... I've tried to be faithful to what you call me to do today, and I know there's a real possibility that some have misunderstood my motives. My motives are not to be dictatorial or tell another church of which I'm no longer a member what to do, but simply to be faithful to what I believe you've asked me to do this day. Now, Lord, we do believe that somewhere in this Southern Baptist Zion, there is a there is a God-called man who walks with you in holiness, in moral purity, who seeks above all else to live for your glory, who is a devoted student of your word and a fearless prophet of God and proclaimer of the word of God. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would lead this congregation to that man and that he might have a long and fruitful ministry here that this church which has such a great historic ministry see even greater days in the years to come if Jesus tarries than they've ever known in the past that is our prayer God this day in Jesus name Amen in a moment we're going to stand to sing our hymn of commitment number 529 change my heart oh God I've been asked to stand down front and I'm happy to do that if any one of you wants to come and share with me a prayer burden I'll be happy to pray with you someone here doesn't know Christ it's very likely that in an assembly of this many people there's at least one person who's never yet trusted Jesus as his or her Lord and Savior I have some good news for you You can be saved today. You say, what do I have to do to be saved? You have to acknowledge that you've sinned against God and you cannot save yourself. And you have to embrace Jesus and Jesus alone as your Savior by faith. And the promise of Scripture is that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We stand now and sing together 529.